So a little bit ago, we sang the words about needing Jesus every hour. Every hour, I need you. And I think those of us who are believers know exactly what that looks like, what that means, what it feels like to, to recognize that truth. Another way of saying that is every hour, Lord, we need your word. Because that is the way that God relates to us. He relates to us through his revelation of himself to us, through his word. A Christian life that has a very vague understanding of Jesus, detached from the word, and a Christian life that is void of any uh, discipline of being in the word, will be a life that is very far from the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his word every hour because we need him every single hour of every day. That's, uh, I think, a, a plea for us to be in the scriptures. And it's one of the reasons why we come together now as a church to be in the scriptures as a body. This is our corporate time in the Bible. And hopefully this is a, 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 a beginning point for the week for you to be in the word individually. And hopefully it's a spillover from a week of us meditating on God's word in our daily lives. How much we need his Word. If you would please go with me in God's Word to Genesis 21, this particular chapter in the Scriptures. We are in the book of Genesis. We have been for some time, and we find ourselves now in chapter 21, working our way through expositionally through this book, seeing this first book of the Bible unfold for us. Really, this uh, first chapter of the Bible, so to speak, unfold for us so that we're able to piece together so many of the things that we read about later in the Bible, whether it is later in the Old Testament or whether it is in the New Testament. So much of it goes back to, very explicitly, back to what we are encountering here in this first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And today is part two of a set of sermons entitled, The two sons, the two sons. Last week, we focused on the birth of Isaac, the first son mentioned there. And Isaac enters, that was the big point we looked at last week. Isaac enters the scene, verses 1 to 7. And what we discussed there was that this is a major point of culmination and fulfillment in the narrative of Genesis as a whole, but especially in this narrative of Abraham. We were introduced to Abraham in chapter 12, and what we get in these first seven verses of chapter 21 is a culmination event. It is a fulfillment event. We've been waiting for this, and as we've been going through from week to week to week since chapter 12 months ago, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now, the beginning of chapter 21, we get this birth of Isaac. We've been looking at Abraham, as I said, since chapter 12. He is the recipient of God's call. Remember, God calls him out of his homeland to a land he will show him. He's a recipient of God's call, God's blessings, and God's promises. And all of this hinges on offspring. As we said last week, the promise of an heir. All of the promises that God puts into Abraham's heart or Abram, as we're first introduced to him, all the promises that God puts into his heart hinge on the birth of a a son, a son to him. And as the narrative unfolds, 
we see that this, is, this will be offspring in his old age and through his barren wife. So when we come, or when we came to the birth of Isaac last week, we noticed that there are some major theological truths that just sort of come right up out of the text. And I gave you four of them. And it's, it's very important that we see this. This is a key biblical text. This is a key passage in all of the Bible, the birth of Isaac. And so it should be no surprise to us when we come to this event that we get these sort of bedrock foundational Christian truths. And they just really leap right off of the page for us. So what we looked at last week were that God meets his people. We see God visiting Sarah. He he comes to his people. He meets with them. He makes himself known to them, brings his attentive care to them. We saw that God keeps his promises. The text is very clear at the beginning that, that what happens in the birth of Isaac is most fundamentally an instance of God keeping a promise. So God keeps his promises. God accomplishes his purposes. God said this would happen. He worked through history to make it happen. And God said it would happen at a particular time, about this time next year. God had said to both Abraham and Sarah. And what happens? It happens exactly according to God's sovereign purposes. According to his sovereign plan. So God accomplishes his purposes. And then we saw that God establishes Excuse me, God establishes his praise. We saw the praise of obedience. Abraham praises God, responds to God by by naming the child Isaac as God had commanded him and by circumcising the child as God had commanded him. And we see the praise of rejoicing. What does Sarah do at the birth of her little baby in her old age? She's 90 years old. And she has this little baby, Isaac. What does she do? She praises God. She rejoices in God and says, God has done this. And God has done the impossible. So we get this amazing truth right here in this passage that God establishes his praise. That's what God is about. God is not about making you comfortable. God is not about seeing to the fulfillment of your dreams. God is about establishing his praise in the earth. That's his purpose, that he might be glorified, that we would glorify him and praise him. And sometimes it takes much suffering for us to bring him praise from our hearts. Sometimes, and we've seen this in our lives, sometimes it's in those moments of great suffering. And maybe that's a, t- a time for you right now. Maybe there's just a, it's a time of grieving. It's a time of anxiety. It's a time of intense stress. And you feel either internally or externally or maybe both just pressed down. And this is something to remember that God's purposes supremely are that he be praised. And what way he is praised when we are struggling and suffering. And we have to lean on him and depend on him in those moments. God is praised from a needy heart, a dependent heart. And so take heart this morning, if that is you, and see this ultimate end as a greater end than you being comfortable or you maybe not having this trial or not having this suffering, that the greater end of God being glorified and God being praised is far more important And will be in all of eternity 
than this light and momentary affliction being lifted from you. These truths, these four truths, are repeated throughout the Bible. It's one of the fascinating things. These are, these are fundamental. This is theology 101. These are repeated throughout the Bible and are foundational to the Christian faith. And what I want, to, want you to see, just by way of introduction, as we move towards our passage for today, what I want you to see is that God ultimately does all of these things in Christ. So I want to just give this to you, just a snapshot of this, so you see that that. What we're seeing here by God meeting his people, keeping his promises, accomplishing his purposes, establishing his praise in the birth of Isaac are ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Isaac's descendant, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord. And so let me go through these briefly with you. God meets his people. Where do we see this? Well, obviously, Matthew 1, 23 is one instance. Jesus is... Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, God meets his people in a way that he never has before or never has since. In Christ, God meets his people by becoming man. Jesus Christ, the word of God, became man and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, John says, We have seen him as human beings. He meets with us in the person of his son. And his son's spirit dwells in our hearts. God keeps his promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in him. I love that verse. What an amazing verse. Any promise in the Bible that you can read as we're moving through redemptive history, all the promises that God makes to the patriarchs, to the prophets, to the kings, all of the little types that are, that are uh, promise-oriented, all of that comes crashing in at the time of Jesus and are fulfilled entirely in him. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. God accomplishes his purposes, Galatians 4.4. 4. This is what it says about the coming of Jesus. Paul says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So for Isaac, when the fullness of time had come, that next year, the time that God said it would happen, it happened and Isaac was born. And what we see all throughout redemptive history, ultimately, when the fullness of time had come in God's preordained plan, he sent forth his son. Born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law. Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up. Listen to this. This is the crucifixion. God was not taken by surprise. It wasn't the Romans or the Jews who just had free reign to do what they pleased. Acts 2.23 says that, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God put his son on the cross. And he did that according to his perfectly sovereign, in-control plan. And then finally, God establishes his praise. Ephesians 1.12, those who hope in Christ, Paul says, are to the praise of his glory. That's why we are saved, people. That's why we know Jesus. To the praise of his 
glory. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we will be a testimony to his mercy and kindness and love that he lavished on us forever in the ages to come. That we will forever be a testimony before angelic eyes, a testimony to the glory of God's grace in his Son. So today, we come to the second half of this story. That's verses 1 to 7. All of that really just to help us recap what we looked at last week and kind of lean into what we're going to be covering today. So we come to the second half of this story, verses 8 to 21. And our attention moves from Isaac to Ishmael. So last week we looked at Isaac enters, and this week we look at Ishmael exits. And I want to give you two basic ideas that will help us unpack these verses. Just two words that help us unpack what we find in verses 8 to 21, and they are one, separation, and two, salvation. Separation and salvation. But before we do that, let's go ahead and stand. For the reading of God's word. This is a time where we show our reverence for the word of God. And by the way, there's a great video out there that you can look up. It's called The God Who Speaks. And it is a documentary on the Bible. And uh, I would encourage you to watch that. Such an encouraging. And it looks at historical historical questions about the Bible, the veracity of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. It also talks about the theology of Scripture. So it's so good for all of these uh, various components of our understanding of the Bible. But here we stand to read God's Word that we might sit under it. We stand to read it that we might be reminded to sit under it. Let's read it. Verses 1 to 21. We'll go ahead and read the whole passage. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And that was what we looked at last week. And now we move to our passage for today. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and skin and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about, a, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to our God and ask him just to use the word this morning to comfort us, and strengthen us in our walk with him, in our faith and trust in him, to convict us of our sins, help us see the depths of our hearts, idolatries. We all have that and that God would just purge those things from us today and he would use this time in special ways to minister to his people by means of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at just the glory of Scripture, how you shine through the pages of the Bible. Father, as as many have written about over the hundreds of years of Christian theology, your word is self-attesting. It is self-authenticating. It shows itself to be divine. It shows itself to be from the mouth of God, as Jesus says. It shows itself to be God-breathed. As we see its grandeur and its unity, as we see its, its line of purpose from beginning to end, as it transforms our lives like nothing else can. We see your glory through your word. And Father, what a privilege it is to be able to preach your word, to be able to spend time all week studying it and thinking about it, meditating on it, and then and communicating it to your people. God, I praise you for that privilege, and we praise you for the privilege we have this morning just to sit under it and to, to hear it read and, and, and hear it explained. And God, we know that that this is a, a great privilege for us as your people to be able to have access to your word. And we know that this passage has great truths for us and we trust that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives, that we would be attentive this morning, both physically, mentally, as our ears are attuned to you, as we work to focus. We know focusing does not come natural to us, especially in our day and age, and Father, we have to work to listen to preaching. We have to work to listen to your word and follow its logic. We pray that we would work this morning. And Father, we ask that as we hold our 
minds towards your word, that you would use it to penetrate the eyes of our hearts, the ears of our hearts, that we would hear from the heart and see from the heart and be changed by it. God, thank you for your faithfulness, which we have seen many times in our lives in little ways. But God, what faithfulness we see in the big ways of Scripture as you are faithful to bring about the salvation of the universe through the seed of Abraham. God, what glory this is. What glory these stories show us. We pray that we would see them not as little stories, but we would see them as the the great story of universal redemption. Redemption of your people. Redemption of your created order. Redemption that will last forever. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, this morning, let's look at separation. Separation. And for that, I want to reread verses 8 to 14. It says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. It has been two or three years since the birth of Isaac. And now the tension between the two sons and the two mothers comes back into focus. Fifteen or so years before, we have to go back fifteen or or so years, Sarah and Abraham had made a foolish choice to have a son through Sarah's Egyptian servant Hagar. And as we read in chapter 16, this created much tension. Back then, when we were there, 15 years ago, so let me read to you just a few verses from chapter 16 as we kind of go back to the origins of Ishmael, Hagar's son. Chapter 16, verse 4, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarah's barren. She can't have a child. God has made these lofty promises to Abraham. So so Sarah's idea is, Sarai at the time, her idea is, look, let me just give you my servant and you can have a child with her and that'll be my child because she's my servant. And that's the way God's going to do this great thing, right? Okay, let's go for it. Abraham, okay. Abraham just goes with it. And that's the folly that we see there. But the result is, The tension that results is that once Hagar, who is a servant and inferior to Sarai, once she has a child in her womb, her mind, her heart is elevated above, as we would naturally understand it would happen, is elevated above Sarai, her mistress. Because who's got the child? Not you, me. And so we see this contempt. In her heart. And then in verse 6, we see the tension increases as Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So now we have a, a pregnant servant 
who is showing contempt for her mistress, who is Abraham's wife, who cannot get pregnant. And then we have Sarai angry about the whole thing and reminding Hagar she's just a servant. No matter that she has a child in her womb, she's just a servant, reminding her of that harshly. And then we have Hagar saying, I'm out of here. And she leaves and goes away. And at the end of that story, we are reminded God comes to her. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. God comes to her. He brings, tells Hagar to return. She returns. And of course, now we are 15 years later. When we come to chapter 21, here in this chapter, the tension continues. But now it is focused on the two sons. In the last chapter, chapter 16, the tension really was between the two, the two mothers. Or, well, she, Sarah wasn't a mother at that point, but between the two women. Now the tension is between these two sons. We have Isaac, the toddler, two or three years old, a little guy. And Ishmael, the teenager, 15 or 16 years old at this point. And it's during this great weaning feast for Isaac that Sarah notices something very disturbing. She sees Ishmael laughing at, or the, the way to understand this verb, I think, would, uh, more properly would be mocking, mocking Isaac. So in some way, the text is not very clear, but in some way, we have Ishmael sort of putting himself above Isaac, making sport of him, mocking him, this little kid. In Ishmael's mind, I am the older son. I am Abraham's first son. Who knows what's in Ishmael's mind? But what we have here is a form of laughing that Paul can describe in Galatians 4.29 as persecution. It's interesting Paul fills this out for us, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Paul refers to what's happening here as persecution. The son of the slave woman persecutes the son of the free woman. And he'll go on to to talk about the implications of that. But he refers to this laughing as persecution. So what we're to understand from this is that what Ishmael is doing to Isaac is is somewhere between being disrespectful and being hostile. Maybe. Sarah perceives that this son of Abraham, Ishmael, would even try to harm Isaac. Who knows? But Sarah's response is heated and swift. She goes to Abraham and says, get rid of them both. Get them out of here. Send them away. Verse 10 says, cast out, cast out this slave woman and her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Two things strike us here in Sarah's language. First, this is the same verb used. There's only two times that this verb that she uses, cast out, is used up to this point. Only two times. One is in the garden when God drove out Adam and Eve from the garden. This is a very strong verb, drove them out from the garden. This is the fall. This is them having to leave. And with Cain, as Cain talks to God and says, you've driven me out. I've been driven out. I'm being driven out from your face. So this is very strong language. And the reader is meant to get that impression. She's saying, get them out of here now. 
Another thing we notice here that's striking is Hagar and her son are dehumanized. Hagar is just a slave woman and her son. Isaac's name is mentioned many times in this, in this passage, in chapter 21. But Ishmael's name, per se, is not mentioned. He's just the son. He's the son of the slave woman. Here we see Sarah dehumanizing Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah has no concern for either of them. Get them out of my face. Get them out of your tents. They are in the way, Abraham. So here, we basically have a repeat of what we saw in chapter 16. We have contempt on one side in the person of Ishmael as he shows contempt for Isaac, this mocking. So contempt, just as we had in chapter 16, and harshness on the other side. There she treated her harshly as a servant. Here she wants her gone. And as was the case in chapter 16, Abraham is caught right in the middle of it all. Verse 11, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. You know, this is a really sad story. If you, if you can... If you can empathize with Abraham. Any of us who has children would be able to do that. Abraham at one point had asked the Lord that Ishmael might be the one. Chapter 17. That Ishmael might be the one of promise. Abraham loves his son, Ishmael. And even had in his heart up to this point, prior to this point, hopes for him. Even hopes that might align his own personal life with God's great purposes that he had communicated to him. Of course, this thing was exceedingly displeasing to Abraham because of his son. And this is where the Lord steps in with two things for Abraham. Two things we have here. God speaks to Abraham and gives him two things. He gives him comfort and command. The comfort is that Ishmael will be okay. It's okay, Abraham. I'm going to take care of your son. Verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. I'm going to take care of Ishmael. Don't you worry. Abraham, that's great comfort for him. And this shows us, I think, very specifically God's grace to Abraham. Once again, we've seen that over and over and over again. Why is this tension falling on him? I'm sure all of us have experienced that feeling of great sort of sadness mixed with anxiety, mixed with just gloominess, mixed with this deep feeling of depression over something going on in our lives. This, I think all of this is Packed into this moment in Abraham's heart. And why has this come upon him? Because of his own foolish choices. Because of his own folly. That's why he's in this situation. That's why he has all this displeasure in his heart and in his gut. It's because of what he's brought on his life. Because of what he and Sarah in their sin brought on their own lives. Yet, God meets him in his folly. That's the God we have as our father. Every single one of us has made foolish choices and will undoubtedly make foolish choices this very week. Yet God is gracious and kind. He meets us. He takes all of our broken pieces and he turns it for good for his glory. 
Of course, no right-believing Christian will understand that to be a license to make foolish choices. Anyone who thinks that way, as I've said before, uh, must ask themselves some questions about the authenticity of their trust in Christ. Because those who know God, who trust God, don't think that way. I'll just mess up. I'll just do these things. I'll just sin and make foolish choices, make a wreck of my life. God will fix it. God will turn it for good. God's in control. That kind of presumptuousness that presumes on God's grace in folly and sin and disobedience is not of God. That is not to fear God. That is not to reverence Him. The Christian wants to follow Him and fear Him. Yet, we always fall back on His grace because we know He turns even our failures for good. So God brings all this consolation to Abraham. And then we have the command. So we have the comfort and we have the command. The command is that Abraham is to do what Sarah says. Verse 12, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For, though Isaac sh- for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then what do we read? Abraham rises early to carry out God's command. And I think there's a little lesson for us here in Abraham rising early to do exactly what God had commanded him to do. We see that again in Genesis 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac. This tells us something about Abraham. Not so we look on Abraham and we say, oh, look how great Abraham is. He's a hero. I'm going I'm to be, I'm going to make all my efforts to be like Abraham. But so we come to understand more about what faith is. This shows us that faith, by its very nature, involves obedience in the hard things. It is easy sometimes to obey God. It is easy sometimes for us to do exactly what God tells us to do. That's fine. But real Deep faith, the kind of faith, the faith of the offspring of Abraham, the faith that is a gift from God, is a faith that creates obedience in the hard things. The things that are very uncomfortable and very challenging. And we see that here with Abraham, and we see it later in chapter 22. This does not make Abraham happy, yet he does it with a kind of fixed resolve that shows he trusts in God's word. And God is his Lord. So he does, as Noah before him, as we've seen in others of faith, in the scripture, he does, as Hebrews 11 will hold them up, he does what God tells him. The hard things and without delay. He gives Hagar enough provisions to carry, and then he sends her and the boy on their way. Abraham knows that they need only what they can carry because God's got this. God's got them covered. Probably with tears in his eyes, undoubtedly, but these tears are overshadowed by a deep faith in God's promises. God has just shown him, think about this, God has just shown him that he keeps his promises by giving him Isaac. 
And now Abraham, trusting on God's faithfulness in the past, is able to look towards the future and know God will likewise keep his promises regarding Ishmael. And that's the way we live the Christian life oftentimes. We are reminded constantly of God's faithfulness to us. We are meant to go back and to consider all the ways that God has shown himself gracious to us in our lives. He saved us. He redeemed us. He took us away from a heart that was focused on self. And we still struggle with that. But a heart that's focused on self to a heart that is focused on him. He took us away from a life of darkness and disarray and disobedience to a life of love for God and faithfulness to him. He has done these things to us. And when we look back and consider what he has done in his faithfulness, we are able to press into his faithfulness for tomorrow's struggles. And that's what we see here with Abraham. The man of faith, the father of faith. So the big idea here, going back to it, is separation. Ishmael is being separated from Isaac. And here's the main thing I want you to see. God is doing this. See this. This is very important for this point. God is the main player here. He's the main actor. Who is separating Ishmael from Isaac? It is none other than God. Yes, Sarah's anger, you see it, you feel it, you feel her anger. If you're a mother, especially I'm sure you feel this anger. This is my boy. Get that one out of here. Sarah's anger, selfishness, and harshness initiate this separation. But Behind all of that is the sovereign God. He's the one orchestrating these events. He's the one who is sovereign even over Sarah's request. We see this beautifully played out in the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Remember what you meant for evil, Joseph says. His brothers sell him into slavery. And in fact, they're thinking about killing him. They, they hate Joseph. He is so arrogant, they say. He's having these dreams that the whole family's going to bow down to him. And he's got this coat, this beautiful coat that nobody else got because he's his father's favorite. His father's favorite son of his favorite wife. Messed up situation there for sure. But Joseph is there, the enemy of these brothers as they see it. So this teenager Joseph, they take him, they throw him in a pit, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with him. Should we just kill him? No, we're going to sell him into slavery. So he goes into slavery, goes into Egypt. God's with Joseph. Amazing story. Can't wait till we get there. But right there at the end of Genesis, God is with Joseph. And at the end, Joseph reunites, God reunites Joseph with his brothers. And Joseph tells his brothers, don't bicker over this situation. Don't be beat down about what happened in the past. What you meant for evil, my brothers, God meant for good. God was sovereignly moving Joseph to Egypt that he might be elevated to a position of authority so that God's people would be brought there, saved from famine, and it would set the stage for the exodus where God would picture his salvation through Christ, through bringing the people of God out of bondage into the promised land. All of this, sovereign God, even over 
the brother's sin. And that's what we see here too. We see it time and time again in the Bible. And we see this in a few specific ways here. The fact that God is doing this. First, God supports Sarah's demand. God says to Abraham, whatever she says, do it. Sarah's demand is described as being from God. It's interesting. In Galatians 4.30, this is what Paul says. But what does the scripture say? He doesn't say, what does angry Sarah say in her wrath and foolishness? No, that's not what he says. He says, what does the scripture say? And then he quotes Sarah. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This is scripture saying. God is speaking, as it were, through this entire event. And God uses the same language as Sarah to describe Ishmael and Hagar. He doesn't say correction, correction, Sarah. Her name is Hagar, and his name is Ishmael. God says, the son of the slave woman. So why? Why is God doing this? Why is God separating Ishmael from Isaac? And the answer should be obvious by this point, and I'm just going to state it simply, to protect the seed. That is what is happening in this story. One commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says this about Moses, the author. The author is concerned in these narratives. Listen to this. This is important because this, I think, ties together what we've looked at in the last several chapters. The author is concerned in these narratives with the threats, Pharaoh, Abimelech, and the possible rivals, Lot, Ishmael, to the legitimate heir born to the elderly man and his wife. In other words, what we've encountered since we met Abraham were two major threats to what God's doing, right? Remember we had Pharaoh, that was a threat to be overcome because Pharaoh took Sarah into his palace and what did God do? God overcame that threat. He overcame that obstacle. And then we had Abimelech, God overcame that threat. So far we've had two potential heirs, We've had two potential rivals. We've had Lot. Now, up to this point, we haven't seen the story of Lot from that perspective. But now I want you to see that. What is going on with Lot? Lot is Abraham's nephew. Had Lot stuck around, Lot perhaps would have had a legitimate reason to say, look, Abraham, why are you looking for an heir? Just, just, I'm, your, I'm like your son. I'm your nephew. No, no, no. God removes Lot to make way for the seed. And here we have the same thing. God is overcoming obstacles. He's removing threats and he is removing rivals for the seed. All threats have been overcome and all rivals have been removed. The seed is charging forward. Why? Because God's plan to save sinners like you and me is charging forward. It's amazing to think Here we are, we're reading this story. This is like some old story in an old book that seems so distant from life. Some seems so distant from what we're doing today. But in in this very act of God separating Ishmael from Isaac, he is preserving the very seed that will lead to the seed, Christ, who will bring salvation to us and make us offspring of Abraham. We are reading our salvation story. In God's sovereign elimination of Ishmael from the family. Cluttering the line. 
a potential competitor and rival. Who knows what would have happened had Ishmael stuck around? Who knows what accident would have happened, perhaps, to Isaac, the one being persecuted by Ishmael? But those are irrelevant questions because God had never intended for that to happen. God removed the rival. Another implication for us is that Paul interprets the story allegorically in Galatians 4. And maybe you've read this before. We read this earlier. Mike did. This is a really strange passage. You know, what's this allegorical interpretation of this, of this passage? Well, Paul interprets this story allegorically to say that those who try to be saved by law-keeping are sons of the slave woman. So we've got sons of promise and sons of the flesh. Isaac is the son of promise, born through promise. Those who are justified by faith alone and Christ alone are like Isaac. Children of promise. It's an allegory. But Ishmael is the son of the slave woman, born according to the flesh. Those who seek to be made right with God by law keeping are like Ishmael, children of slavery. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you a child of promise? Or are you still seeking? Bible Belt, Georgia. Are you still seeking to be justified by your works? When you think about standing before God one day, do you think at all about the tally of your deeds before Him? Or do you think only of Christ's blood, only of Christ's finished work? I am a sinner deserving God's wrath. I shouldn't even be here this morning breathing And God has graciously sent his own son to bear his judgment, his wrath, his hatred of sin, his holy, hot hatred of sin on his son that I might be forgiven and pardoned and covered by his son's blood, his son's righteousness imputed to my account, account not guilty, account innocent. If that's not your hope, then you are a child of the slave woman. And on your way to destruction. There is no self-salvation. There's not enough deeds in the world that you could do to save yourself. And make yourself right with God. Only Christ's work. He does the work. Only Christ's work can save you. Justification by faith alone. Through Christ alone. Is a principle that Paul wants us to see even from this passage. As he brings it forward into the new covenant. So God is protecting his seed. But we also see him protecting those who have been sent out. So let me transition now to salvation. First we saw separation. Now as we come to the end of this passage we see salvation. So look with me at verses 15 to 21. 15 to 21. When the water in the skin was gone. She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went, sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great 
nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. These verses bring us back to chapter 16 where Hagar has fled from Sarai and is on her way back to Egypt. Remember that chapter? She's out of there. She's gone from the tents of Abraham, Abram, and she's on her way back to Egypt, it appears. She's going south, headed towards Egypt, southwest. God stops her. The angel of the Lord comes to her and tells her to return. And then he makes promises to her regarding the child in her womb. So let me read a little bit of that passage for you. That's chapter 16, verses 9 to 13. You can flip over if you'd like to that passage. But that's important for setting up what's going on here. Chapter 16, 9 to 13. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. And shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The name Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Just like Isaac's name comes out of the laughing of both Abraham and Sarah as they consider this amazing thing that God is going to give a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man a baby to a woman who was previously barren. Laughter. He laughs. That's Isaac's name. That's what his name means. And now here we have Ishmael with his story. His name means God hears. God heard Hagar. And for the last 15 or 16 years, since that time in the wilderness, the very name of her son should have been a constant reminder to Hagar of the God of comfort and promise whom she met in the wilderness. Every time, Ishmael, Ishmael, every time she called him in for dinner, it should have reminded her of God's comfort and promise. But here... It's been 15 years. Those kinds of things wear off. Sometimes we've seen that in our own lives. We have all this zeal, all this zeal and this understanding of God, and we've beheld him, and we've seen him in our lives, and we're like, this God is faithful, and then we just start to putter out. We ask, how does that not happen? God has ordained means of grace for us. As I said at the very beginning, that we remain in his word, that we abide in his word. It's one of the reasons that I so often cite and love Psalm 1, because the person who makes God's word, his daily nutrition is like a tree, a flourishing, healthy tree. Prayerful intake of God's revelation. But here we have Hagar. She's hopeless, Hagar. All she can see is what's right in front of her. A lack of water, nowhere to go, an impending death. There is only desperation and despair, privation and plight, weeping and wasting away. This is where she finds herself. So, she puts her dehydrated son under a bush. 
and moves far enough away from him so that she doesn't have to watch him die. She doesn't have to hear his last cries as he dies. This is a truly sad, terrible, horrible moment. Anyone who has a child can quickly empathize with this woman. But she is not alone. The same God who heard her and came to her before comes to her now. He is a God of comfort, mercy, kindness, love. He is compassionate. He shows pity on those who suffer. But even more. So we can look at this passage and we can say, generally God cares for the hurting. (coughs) We read that all throughout the prophets, for example. Generally, God cares for those who are afflicted. He cares for the plight of the starving, the hurting. But even more important for this narrative, he is the God of Abraham. That is what we are meant to see most clearly. This is the God of Abraham. And that's how he reveals himself to Moses. He will always be the God of Abraham. And Jesus says that one day when we all enter into his kingdom, that we will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's attached his very name to this man. He is the God of Abraham. And that's the primary reason why God does what he does here. Here we see one of Abraham's sons in danger. Notice that it is Ishmael's voice that God hears. It's not Hagar's voice at this point. It's Ishmael's voice. It is the very voice of Abraham, if you will, through the vocal cords of his son. The faithful, covenant-keeping God of Abraham. Here's Abraham's son, Ishmael. Verse 17, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And if we want to summarize this passage in response to Ishmael's plight, God hears God comforts, God guides, God promises, God rescues, and God prospers. But most significantly, we get this verse, we get these words in verse 20, where it says this about Ishmael, and God was with the boy. We don't know what to make, uh, frankly, of Ishmael or Hagar's salvation. Uh, we, We don't have a lot of information about that kind of thing in Scripture. At this point, uh, the biblical author wants us to focus on what God is doing and God's character and how God is watching over Abraham's son. In terms of the, 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 the faith of Ishmael and Hagar as they go on into life, we don't know. But God's blessing is with the boy God watches over the boy. God prospers the boy. God grows him up to be a man and makes him into a great nation because he is Abraham's son. Even though he's the son of Abraham's folly. This is, as we are meant to see throughout Scripture, a covenant-keeping God. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the covenant through Christ. 
blood. Every time we partake of that, we are meant to see such things in God's word. We're meant to say, God, when we drink that, we, we feel that go down. We are reminded that God keeps covenant through Christ's blood and he will see me through. He will save me. He will raise me. He will be with me. He will not abandon me in the hour of my death. He will come to me and I will reign with Christ forever. I will live forever in perfect bliss with God. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's what we are meant to think. God keeps his promises. This promise doesn't have to do with the line or the redemptive history here with Ishmael. Nonetheless, the never lying God does what he says. Ishmael's descendants have nothing to do with this line, this redemptive history. Yet God shows himself faithful off of this line, so to speak. So what do we take from this? As we finish up this morning, here we have before us, presented before us, a trustworthy and a compassionate God. He presents himself to you today, to us, to all of us. He presents himself to us today. He has sovereignly ordained that we would be here today, that we would see this, and that we would see presented before our eyes his trustworthiness and his compassion. Will you call out to him this morning? Will you run to him? Will you trust in him or trust in yourselves? Will you call out to this God, believing that he will never lie to you? He will never let you down. And he is compassionate to those who call out with feeble knees, weak faith to him. He is compassionate. Trust him with your soul. Trust him with your family. Trust him with everything you are and have. And then go and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Entrust everything to this God. He is trustworthy every day, in every corner of life, in life and in death, in sickness and in health, in good times and bad, in cheer And in depression, he is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your your ordaining grace that we would be here this morning to see you and your word. Father, thank you for who you are. God, so often we hear the lies of Satan. We don't trust you. We don't look to you. We don't follow you. We follow our own devising. We follow our own hearts. We do what so many put on posters and the back of their car. Follow your heart. What a lie. What a lie from hell that is to follow our deceptive, easily deceived hearts. Father, help us follow your word. Trust in who you reveal yourself to be in the Bible. God, help us to lean on you in every area of our lives. 
to let go of all the things that we so desperately feel we must control and to trust you, our God, and live unto you before your face and for your glory and for the good of other people. As long as we have breath, as long as we have life, that when we die, we might die well in faith and in love and in trust and in hope, passing from embodiment to a disembodied existence in your presence, awaiting the resurrection of the body. We pray that we would live with this great rock-solid faith. God, it is a gift we know, so please give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.